continue our series, uh, The Summer Months in the Psalter. And this morning we are in Psalm 26, if you would turn there. Psalm 26, we'll read all 12 verses, the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 26 of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Gracious Father, we pray your Spirit's work even now that our small understanding would reach out and grab hold and that in grabbing hold we would find that we have hold of none other than the Christ himself. Do give us this hope, this assurance. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we were younger, my wife and I loved to snow ski. We did it as much as we could, even in college selling our textbooks just to get enough money to buy lift tickets. Uh, Teaching my wife to ski was very easy. She is much more athletically inclined than I am, or than I was, And although I had skied for a couple of years, in a very brief time, we were pretty much able to ski the same level of difficult slopes together. We then decided to teach her brothers. This proved to be a disaster for a number of reasons. Now, if they were here to tell the story, I can promise that they would speak nothing but lies, or at least exaggerations that try to make me look as though it was my purpose to torture them. Well, if I'm being candid, I did torture them, and I'm not sorry. I took them to the top of the mountain, not a North Carolina mountain, no offense intended, but a Pacific Northwest mountain. I took them to the very top for good reasons, and I said, learn to ski. They didn't at least not on that day. Like their sister, they are both very good athletes and eventually picked it up. To be tossed into the deep end, so to speak, is one way of learning, and sometimes it works wonderfully, and sometimes it doesn't work at all. I remember my preaching professor telling us to never, ever take our congregation into the deep end, into the deep waters of Holy Scripture, and just leave them there. I want to admit... But this morning, we are in deep, deep water, and I am going to try and do my best to not leave us there without at least a beginning in understanding not only why this psalm is in our Bible, 
but why it is that you and I not only should pray these words, but even that we must pray these words, these surprisingly shocking words. I don't think I need to spend much time at all telling you why this psalm is such a problem for so many of us. If I were to ask for a show of hands as to how many of you could say to the Lord, I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted the Lord without wavering. I wonder how many hands would go up. So what do you think about that? It almost sounds like he's bragging. Didn't David understand sin? Was he like so many today and had no ability to see himself clearly? Did David have no self-awareness? Yeah, come on, David. I, I don't want to be negative. Uh, I don't want to bring up a sore subject, but what about your sins? I mean, you have written about them, so we all know them. Who are you kidding? What person, man or woman, boy or girl, who knows himself or herself at all, knows himself or herself as a sinner, as we all in this room know ourselves to be, would ever say that they have walked in integrity without wavering? What was David saying? How could he say it? Should we just ignore this this psalm in our prayers? I mean, can we say these words? Now, to try and answer this predicament, some will run to their systematic theology. But the systematic answer ignores David as a man living life in time. Or, to be blunt, answering this systematically is a cop-out because it doesn't deal with the text. The systematic answer goes something like this. David is referring to his justification by the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. That is, David was saying that he had walked in integrity because it was Christ's life, not his own, that was the life he had to offer to God to judge and measure. Christ was blameless for me, and that is the life I am referring to when I speak these words. Come on. David would never, ever have said that if asked. Never. But also, such an answer makes no sense with what the psalm is actually saying. David is talking about his own life. He's talking about his own behavior. I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood. I do not consort with hypocrites. I proclaim your wondrous deeds. I love your house. David is saying, this is me. This is who I am, and this is how I behave myself. It's not the life of Jesus that is being described in the psalm. It is David's life being described. David even tells the Lord to test him. Go ahead, Lord, test me. See what you find. Again, that that sends most of us to grimace. Most serious Christians I know read the end of Psalm 139 quite sheepishly. Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. That's a dangerous thing to say to God. Now, others will try and get around the problem of Psalm 26 by saying, well, this is the way the immature, unknowledgeable of the Old Testament spoke. But the New Testament Christian, being more aware, would never say such a thing. And how wrong they would be to say that. 
In fact, we find very similar things said all over the pages of our New Testaments. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not enter heaven. That's Matthew 5.20. He's not talking about our justification, the perfect righteousness that we obtain by faith in Christ. He's talking about our living. He's talking about our behavior. He's saying very emphatically that we have to live better than the scribes and Pharisees if we expect to go to heaven. The whole sermon is about the difference being a disciple of Jesus makes in a believer's life. Jesus also said that you would be able to identify his followers by simply looking at the lives they lead. By their fruit, you shall know them. What did we read in our liturgy this morning from John's epistle? There in our call to confession, look at it again. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Or as one commentator said, ask yourself this question. When David says that he lived in his integrity, when Joshua says that he wholly followed the Lord his God, or Caleb says it, as we found in our reading this morning, when Job repeatedly claims that he was blameless before the Lord, how are these statements any different from Paul saying at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And one more tidbit, just to muddy the waters even more. Isn't it true that God himself said about David what David is saying about David in this psalm? We read it in 1 Kings 9. The Lord says to Solomon, David's son, as Solomon begins to reign as king, And as for you, Solomon, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to everything I have commanded, keeping my statutes and rules. The Lord said the same thing about Job, the same thing about Paul. Perhaps the reason we are not praying this psalm is because we don't think that we can. You are not praying for God to vindicate your life because you feel like your life isn't much Worthy of vindication. Your sin is too stark. Your battle with it, even today, is just too hot for you to ever think to claim what David claims. But brothers and sisters, not only should we make that claim, but we can make it. Let me explain. First, David is not claiming to be sinless. David is not denying the seasons of life where where sin seems to gain ground in our hearts and sometimes where we are cold to the Holy Spirit's promptings. He's not denying that. He knows all of that. And he would have been fully and painfully aware of his sin and the havoc that it caused in his own life, in his family, and in his kingdom. And remember, all of that being true, even though he is still a man after God's own heart. Look at your meditation again in the bulletin. All of those things are things David said about himself. As one who loves the Lord, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have overtaken me, for no one living is righteous before you. We could could go on and on with this. So whatever David means... He is in no way making light of sin or of sin's seeming victories at times, even in his own life. 
Second, I would just ask you to remember the context of the Psalms. Uh, An illustration will help. What is probably the most famous sermon, at least that we're aware of, the most famous sermon that Jesus preached? And we'd say, well, more than likely, we'd say the Sermon on the Mount. Did you realize that in the Sermon on the Mount, there is no call to repentance? There is no summons to believe in Jesus or to put your faith in Him. There is no call to be baptized or to take the Eucharist. There is absolutely nothing about justification by faith or how it is that someone becomes a Christian. In his most famous sermon, it is rather an account of the Lord's instruction about what the Christian life looks like, how the Christian views the world, and what we as Christians are to be pursuing. You see, an established relationship is clearly part of the context of the psalm. And like we say all the time, repentance is part of being faithful. Seeking forgiveness for our sins, really seeking God to forgive them all, this is living in integrity before the Lord. David's righteousness, his uprightness, like yours and mine, is sought and secured in the forgiveness of our sins in precisely the way God has told us and told David that such forgiveness would belong to us. Look at verses 6 and 7. Look at them closely. What is David doing? What is he referring to? Or or better yet, where is David in verses 6 and 7? He's at the altar. He's in worship. When David talks about washing in that verse, he refers to the laver, the large basin of water that stood between the altar and the sanctuary. This is where the priests would wash themselves before they offered the sacrifices. To sum this up, David is concerned about his purity before the Lord. A purity that came first and foremost through the means that God had given for the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 8 again. What is David saying? He loves the Lord's house. He loves worship. He loves church. You have the same idea in the very last verse of the psalm where David sees himself standing with the congregation in worship at the sanctuary. If I've lost you, let let me see if I can put this in our context. Part of David's and part of our walking in integrity is giving ourselves full of faith and confidence in God's ways, in the provisions He has made that we might be forgiven. In worship, we confess and receive the forgiveness of our sins, just like David. David lifts his heart in gratitude to God, and he is reminded of the Lord's goodness to him. He hears the word of God, and he is challenged in his faith and in his obedience to live as a child of God. That is what worship is supposed to be about. David then communes with the Lord over a meal. He is reminded of the extraordinary condescension of the Lord in stooping to welcome a sinful man into fellowship with himself. All of this is not done so that then he can have integrity. No, this is his integrity. 
Yes, he gives himself to obedience to God's word. He, he separated himself from those who do not follow the Lord with all their heart. He refused to practice deceit. All, all kinds of behavior that we do, all kinds of behaviors that we shun. But all of this David does in the shadow of the laver. All of this is lived out in the shadow of God's provision for purity, for holiness, for forgiveness. And you see all of this once more and strikingly in verse 11. Think of all he has said, and yet we find him asking the Lord to redeem him, asking the Lord to be gracious. This is not a man, this is not a picture of a man depending upon himself or who is speaking of his life in in tones of of proud self-accomplishment. David knows better than that. This is a man who is living and basking in mercy. This is a man, because of that mercy, who has and continues to give himself to wanting to please the Lord. Is he still sinful? Yes, of course. But at the same time, faithful. David is saying, and and you can say this, I am loyal to my Savior. He is my life. I am making the choice every day to take my stand with Jesus and with his people. And he finds his strength and his his resolve, his hope, in the same place that you are to find it. In the labor, the grace of God in forgiveness, demonstrated most profoundly in the worship of God, where God has promised to proclaim forgiveness to you. He has promised to feed you and to nourish you and to bring you to himself. And so like David, we rejoice in the house of God And in the hundreds of different ways, we get to show the Lord that although we are still broken, we love Him. Brothers and sisters, when the day ends, and maybe the day hasn't been particularly successful, your your head hits the pillow and, and you can say, Lord, I love you. You know I am trying with everything in me. And please hear this well. You must never forget that you, in the language of Holy Scripture, you belong to God. Your sin, real as it is, shameful as it is, is not characteristic of your truest self. You guys know me. I am not trying to make light of sin at all. Nonetheless, it is your loyalty to God's covenant, your being a child of God that is your defining characteristic, not your sin. You boil it down. What is it that characterizes you? What is it that identifies you? It is not your sin. It is the fact that you belong to God. And when the Lord tests you, like David asks him to do, you can be confident that the Lord will find what he ought to find when he tests his people. And sinlessness is not what the Lord ever expects to find. He does expect to find a true and growing desire for his pleasure, a true and growing hatred for sin, 
real obedience, no matter how imperfect. And he expects to find you drawn to the house of God where he has promised to give you what you most need, which is himself. I am going to uh, use a very lengthy illustration that I read this past week to conclude this morning. Actually, I read it a couple of weeks ago. It is this illustration that convinced me to preach this psalm this morning. I wanted to, but to tell you the truth, I was afraid of it until I read this. The illustration, as I read, is far too long, and I will try and set the table briefly to to kind of convey the main idea. It comes from a book that is called The Talent Code, and it talks about how you learn a new skill, playing a piano, dribbling a basketball, that kind of thing. I know this hasn't grabbed you yet. Just give me a minute. The author wants to explain what circumstances or even what places causes talent to grow more quickly, more quickly than most people would experience it. And to illustrate this, he uses a video produced by two Australian researchers of a 13-year-old clarinet student who has amazed music psychologists with the speed at which she learns. Here is the author. On screen, Clarissa does not look particularly talented. She even has an expression of sleepy indifference. At first, Clarissa has been classified as mediocre. According to aptitude tests and the testimony of her teacher, her parents, and even herself, Clarissa possessed no real musical gifts. She lacked a good ear. Her sense of rhythm was average. Her motivation subpar. In the study's written section, she marked, because I'm supposed to, as the strongest reason for her practicing. Many of you can relate to that. Nonetheless, Clarissa has become famous in music science circles because on an average morning, the camera captured her doing something distinctly unaverage. In five minutes and 54 seconds, she accelerated her learning speed by 10 times, according to calculations. And what was more, she didn't even notice. And here is what we see if we watch the video. It's morning. Clarissa's customary time for practice, a day after her weekly lesson. She's working on a new song entitled Golden Wedding, a 1941 tune by jazz clarinetist Woody Herman. She listens to the song a few times. She likes it. And now she's going to try and play it. Clarissa draws a breath and she plays two notes. Then she stops. She pulls the clarinet away from her lips and she just stares at the paper. Her eyes narrow. She plays seven notes, the song's opening phrase. She misses the last note and immediately stops, jerking the clarinet away from her lips. She squints again at the music and sings the phrase softly. She starts over. She plays the riff from the beginning, making it a few notes farther into the song this time, missing the last note, backtracking and fixing the mistake. The opening is beginning to snap together. When she's finished with this phrase, she stops again for six seconds, seeming to replay in her mind, fingering the clarinet as she thinks. She leans forward, she takes a breath, and she starts again. It sounds pretty bad. It's not music. It's broken up, fitful, slow-motion batch of notes riddled with stops and miscues. Common sense would lead us to believe that Clarissa is failing 
but in this case, common sense would be dead wrong. This is amazing stuff, the author says. This is how a professional musician would practice on Wednesday for a Saturday evening performance. On the screen, Clarissa leans into the sheet music, puzzling out a G-sharp that she's never played before. She looks at her hand, then at the music, then at her hand again. She hums the riff. Clarissa's posture is, is tilted forward. She looks as though she's walking into a chilly wind. Her sweetly freckled face tightens into a squint. She plays the phrase again and again. Each time she adds a layer of spirit and, and rhythm and swing. Look at that, the author says. She's got a blueprint in her mind that she's constantly comparing herself to. She's working in phrases and complete thoughts. She's not ignoring errors. She's hearing them and she's fixing them. She's fitting small parts into the whole, drawing the lens in and out all the time, scaffolding herself to a higher level. This is not ordinary practice. This is something else. Listen carefully. A highly targeted, error-focused practice. Something is growing, being built. The song begins to emerge, and with it, a new quality within Clarissa. This is not a picture of talent produced by genes. It's something far more interesting. It is six minutes of an average person entering a magical, productive zone, one where more skill is created with every passing moment. The author argues that talent grows and grows rapidly by this targeted error-focused practice, what the author calls deep practice. It is how small schools around the world have become famous for turning out one world-class performer after another. They teach this kind of practice. Each mistake is made an opportunity to learn, to correct, to improve. Concentration on errors and putting those errors right, that is the key. Now, I want to admit to you that, musically speaking, this is all a bit beyond me. However, is this not a description of the Christian life? We don't ignore the errors, and there are plenty of them. No, we stop. We look at the error, why we made it. And because the Lord has not left us to ourselves, we fix it. We know, because he has told us, that our life is to be beautiful. We are his workmanship, after all. And so given what we have been given, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the Eucharist, one another, we eke out a few notes, fix them, go back and we do it again, and we get a little further. And when we get stopped, yes, yes, by our sin, When we get stopped by our broken selves, we read, we think, we squint, we pray, and we start again. And in our souls, there is always this true desire to please the Lord. That is what it means to live in integrity. And, and I think this is where so many of us get stilted. We are stopped, again, by our sin. We are stopped... And we just put our instrument down. 
We give up. We ignore. We don't deal with the sin. We are too ashamed. And so we hide it and we mask it and we we push it down deep. What did Paul mean when he says, forgetting what lies behind? Paul would say, look, I know I'm a screw up. I know everything that I have broken. I even know what a mess I am as a Christian. Just read Romans 7. And he would say, I can't change the past. I wish I could. If I could, I would. But I can't. But I will press on. I will press on to make righteousness my own. And he tells us why. This is why you are to press on to make righteousness your own. And the reason is because Jesus has made you his own. Isn't isn't that what we have here in Psalm 26? David lives as a godly man. He stumbles, to be sure. And he tells us he stumbles all the time, even as we do. But because he belongs to the Lord, he knows that those stumbles are errors to be repented of and errors by God's grace to be fixed. He pauses, as it were. He goes around the laver and the altar again to remember and to bask in forgiveness, to clear his head, to weep with joy for mercy. And he starts again. That is how the Christian life is lived. And that, brothers and sisters, is how we walk in our integrity. Psalm 26 is an important psalm to know. You can say what David said of himself. You absolutely can. You want to live in faithfulness. You sin. You surely do and you surely will. But he has provided for that. And perhaps nowhere is that more demonstrated to us consistently than it is here at the table. Here is his provision so that you can say, I have walked in integrity and I have trusted the Lord without wavering. And we are to take the same encouragement, the same confidence, and the same assurance away from this psalm that David had when he wrote this psalm. And a false, let me say this, a false understanding of the gospel will erode that confidence and that assurance. Or if I could be candid, of course you're a screw-up. So am I. Whoever learned to play the piano without making mistakes by the thousands. But you are also a child of God whose mistakes and whose trips around the altar and whose dips in the labor are forming Christ in you. All of this is taking me, this is taking you step by step, not to musical stardom, No, something far greater than that. This is taking us right in to the heart of Jesus. Where else would you want to go? Where else would you want to be? Our gracious Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for the sacrament. And we thank you that when we reach out and take hold, we take hold of none other than Jesus himself. And we pray that as we 
as we partake of bread and wine, that we would not be tripped up by mere outward signs and symbols, but that we would embrace the reality, forgiveness of all our sins, life that is glorious and filled with joy, and a hope in, in the future, in what is ahead of us, that we might press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of us. Oh, Father, would you give us this sight? Would you let us experience that even now? And would you strengthen our faith as we eat and drink in Christ's name? Amen.